All right, guys, what's going on? Anthony Pompliano, most of you know me as Pomp, and you are listening and watching to the Behind the Lens podcast with Roger Rojas. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens podcast with Roger Rojas, and today's guest is Anthony Pompliano. Man, man, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, I want to get in right, in, right into it. We were just laughing about it. Uh, you have a tweet pinned on your page saying, my rules of business are build shit people want, never give up, avoid assholes, question assumptions, learn new ideas, and always reward ambition. Where that, you know, that tweet was hearted over 24,000 times, retweeted over 6,000 times, and over 1,300 comments. Where did that come from? I literally don't plan any of my tweets. Uh, I just was sitting there one day and I was like, what exactly do I think are the rules of business? And I tweeted it and I knew that I was going to pin it at the top of my Twitter account. Uh, and so I tweeted, I think I pinned it like almost immediately. And I actually think with that tweet, I shut off uh, Twitter. Like I just you know left Twitter and came back an hour later and was like, whoa, did not expect uh expect that one. Um, and then I've just left it there ever since. And it's kind of one of these things where uh, I believe in, um, you know, kind of people filtering themselves out. And so if you disagree with those things, you probably shouldn't follow me. And so that's why it's pinned right there. And uh, so far, so good. Yeah. And I, I want to touch on the, the subject line. These are all so, as I said before, blunt, but yet true. Um, and the one that for me that came up to me was two of them never give up and avoid assholes. Uh, the I want to talk about the avoiding assholes. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's just life's really short, right? And I think that generally people, uh, especially younger people, think it's do whatever it takes to uh, be successful, right? And for me, it's just as you get older, you know, maybe or maybe kind of you've got more experience, you just realize like, I want to work with people that I enjoy working with. And so if you're an asshole or you, you know, always make it difficult to work uh, for people to work with you, I don't want to work with you. And I literally will make less money or be less successful in order to have more enjoyment in my life. And um, again, that's something that's really hard to comprehend when you're young. Uh, but just, you know, as I've gotten older and I'm only 32, so it's not like I'm some, you know, old guy who's got all the experience in the world, but it's just over the last, you know, 10, 12 years, like that definitely has uh, kind of taken hold. Um, and I, you know, what you find is like people who take that perspective tend to find pe other people who take the same perspective. Like if I don't want to work with assholes, usually the people I end up working with are the people who don't want to work with assholes either. And so it ends up, you know, like-minded people kind of flock together. Love that. And then we, we talk about never giving up. Um, you've invested into over a hundred million to early stage companies. And again, as I said, on your Twitter bio, you call multiple unicorns. So I want to touch on that of what were those unicorns and what was that mentality with never giving up, especially when you're investing into a company that's just starting out, which is very, very high risk. Yeah. So I probably take a very different approach to early stage investing than most people. Uh, one is I really don't care about the idea. Like I'll, you know, think through it and does this make sense? But really the reason why I'm spending any time at all on the idea is because I'm trying to better understand the person. And so like, there's very few smart people that I know who have like completely asinine ideas. It's usually like, hey, I think that the market is developing a certain way. I think that somebody's gonna build a company that does X, Y, or Z. I'm gonna start doing that. And if I get new information, maybe I'll kind of tweak it here or there, but uh, you know, I kind of have a perspective on the world. Um, 
when you go through it and kind of game plan it and say, well, what happens if this happens or what happens if a competitor does X or Y, like you can very quickly just unpack like this person is uh, intellectually uh, one, very smart two uh, doesn't have like rigid ideas, isn't willing to change. Um, and also I think three uh, has an ability to articulate ideas in a way that will allow them to raise capital, to close customers, to um, hire employees and, and retain those employees and things like that. And so ultimately I'm just making a bet on the person. Uh, and there's great people who end up starting companies and they don't work. And then there's, you know, frankly, bad entrepreneurs who end up starting companies and just literally the market takes over and they end up being super successful. Um, but, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to find those great entrepreneurs. And so I think I've backed over a hundred teams at this point. Um, and uh, well, I'm almost positive over a hundred teams. And uh, you just over time realize that like, it's all about the, the founder at the earliest stages because there's no other data, right? There's nothing to look at. Um, and so that's proven to be a, a pretty good strategy. You just touched on things that you look at for investments. What do you specifically look at for the founder? What are the questions that you ask him? Yeah. So my favorite thing to unpack is like, and, and it's impossible to do, you know, fully, but is this person going to quit? Right. Uh, every company we've had that failed uh, for the most part, the founder quit right now. The founder might not have quit and said, just throwing their hands up, said, I'm done. But something happened along the way. They lost enthusiasm. You know, uh, they, they um, didn't go and raise more capital because they, they saw something in the marketplace. Like just very, very often. And, and it's unfair to say every time, right? It's actually um, a good amount of time uh, that's occurred. And so what you're really trying to underwrite is you're trying to underwrite the fact that this person is going to bash their head against the wall for five or 10 years. Uh, and they're going to keep working at this no matter how hard it is. Uh, and that gives them a shot. Doesn't guarantee that they'll be successful. Uh, but it gives them a shot. And so things that um, I look for are like, one, have you ever had hard jobs before? Right? Somebody who's like, yeah, I've never worked a day in my life. Like, that's pretty scary, right? Because they, they do they understand what hard work is? Have they had to be persistent in their life before? I want somebody who's had a plethora of experiences as well. And that doesn't necessarily mean you've had to travel to every corner of the world or, um, you know, come from some, you know, unique life uh, or family. It just means you've really taken the time to have those different experiences. And that could literally just be like, hey, you've read a lot right? It could be that you've uh, consumed a lot of uh, content on YouTube or, or whatever, but it's just getting that uh, kind of uh, diversification of information uh, and experiences that ends up leading to a more holistic thinker. Uh, and then the third thing that I'm really looking for is I'm looking for somebody who can solve problems. And when I think about solving problems, uh, I don't want somebody who always has the answer, right? The, the, the end result isn't as important as the process. And so what I'm trying to unpack is like, do they think from first principles, right? Do they have the confidence and conviction uh, to actually talk about ideas that may not be popular or actually may go against conventional belief, but they have a reason for why they believe that. Do they actually uh, sit in a conversation and can they argue both sides, right? Can they say, hey, here's what I believe, but here's also what the other side believes and here's why I think that they're wrong, right? Th those types of things are all data points that signal uh, this person is uh, kind of the right person to start a business. Um, and then it culminates with like, is this person the right person to start this business, right? So if I spent my entire life working on chemistry and then all of a sudden I you know, show up and I'm like, you know what? I'm actually gonna start a construction business. I might not be the best person to start that company, 
right? And so what you're looking for is almost this like founder market fit. Why is this founder the right founder for this business versus some other founder? And, and what that does is it really just kind of um, eliminates or filters out people who are being opportunistic um, and, and don't necessarily have the uh, enthusiasm or the excitement and conviction around a market or an idea, uh, which ultimately leads to, again, they're gonna end up giving up because you know they'll find the next shiny thing to go chase. I think you brought up something that's very apparent and important is that it all, the baseline is hard work. And at the beginning, everything's exciting. There's that sense of uh, that quote, I hear it all the time. If you lead your actions by emotions, you'll always fail because it's not always gonna be great. It's not always gonna be exciting. When you're dealing with founders, that are starting out their companies and they hit that roadblock, what are the type of conversations that you have with them? Aside from the emotional component of like, hey, this is what's going on financially, but what are the conversations you have with them? Because they also have to lead their own people, right? Because there's one thing being an investor and there's another thing being a CEO, the people within are looking up to you. What are those conversations like and what are things that you try to touch on that's consistent with every company you invest in? Yeah. So one piece of this is like, I do the best I can with the experience and knowledge that I have. There's a lot of investors that have been doing this way longer than I have that I try to learn from them. Right. So I almost feel like a, a little bit of an imposter when I'm giving some of this advice to, uh, to founders and I have to remind myself like, Hey, I, I've invested in over a hundred companies. Like I've seen a lot. Yes. There are people who have seen more than me, but, but I've definitely done enough of the work to be able to uh, kind of help some of these founders navigate these situations. And the first thing I remind them is like, your situation is not unique. No matter what you're going through, there's a bunch of other founders that went through the same thing. And in many cases, the thing you're worried about is so small compared to the problems other people have had to face that basically like you got to chill out. Right. And, and you got to understand that your number one job is to control your emotions and to show leadership to you know, the people that are, are following you. Because if they lose trust and um, kind of confidence in their leader, then you're gonna lose them. And I think that's a, a key piece is like one, you know, if you wanna have a conversation because you're nervous, you're scared, you're upset, whatever, call me. Don't go and, and have that conversation um, kind of you know, with the low level employee or entry level employee, because what you're gonna do is you're gonna change the culture of your business. And so I think that understanding that as a founder, like who to call when, sometimes you should call your investors. Sometimes you shouldn't call your investors and you should call your you know, co-founder. Other times you shouldn't call the co-founder. You should call you know, literally an executive coach, right? Other times you should go talk to your actual employees or talk to your customers. And like having that kind of emotional intelligence to know what to talk about, but also who to talk about it with is really important. Um, and then I think the other piece of this is just everything is solvable. Right. And sometimes you get this feeling of like the world's ending, like my company's going to go out of business, whatever. Everything is solvable. It may not be easy. It may not be immediately obvious, but everything is solvable. And so you may have to make the best decision out of two bad decisions, but still there is a solution to every problem. Um, and when you have that mentality of like, I will solve this, I don't yet know how, but I will solve it. Immediately you go from defensive mode of like the problems happening to me and I don't know what to do. And I'm just like get, taking punches. So I kind of think of it like a boxer up against the ropes and just like there's getting wailed on to, okay, there's a problem, I'm going to solve it, right? Now you're in control. You're the one moving in across the ring. You're the one delivering the shots and like, sure, you're not going to have the knockout punch. You're not going to have the solution every time, but 
understanding that like the only things you can control are your actions and the way that you and your team respond puts you in an offensive mindset rather than a defensive mindset. And I think that's really, really important because it allows you to one, to control your emotions, but also two, to start to exert your will on the problem. Uh, and for whatever reason, psychologically, like that's just a better position to be in than, you know, kind of just, Hey, the world's crashing around me and I don't know what to do. Yeah, I think the biggest is understanding that being a leader, right? And I love how you brought up emotional intelligence of having certain conversations with certain individuals because you can't have that all the time. I think that's a, an important lesson to know and have is where certain things you can't say to certain people. As a CEO, you shouldn't be going into the coffee room talking to the intern about how you're feeling with the biggest issue at hand when one, they can't do anything about it, even though they're they're listening they really have no kind of framework of to give you a solving answer to the problem. When you first started investing, uh, what was the first company you invested into? Oh man. <laughs> or even top five, it doesn't need to be the first. How long ago was that? I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a really great story though. Um, on the first company I should have invested in, but didn't, uh, I'd never made an angel investment in my life. Uh, How never old were you at the time? On anything. I was, 20 this is in 2014 so i was like 26 maybe uh, i was working at facebook uh a friend of mine or a colleague at facebook had been an angel investor in doordash and uh basically the head of growth i think at the time at doordash was like we, you know, we ran all these growth teams at Facebook. We're supposed to be so smart, whatever. So they came over and, and we we're talking about all kinds of stuff. And, and this guy was like, you know, Hey, you, you should uh, talk to these guys. And I can't remember all the details. So I, I don't want to kind of misspeak, but like, I think they were either just finishing up the seed round or going to raise a series A or th there was some opportunity of like, Hey, if you want to have a conversation about investing, like we'd be open to that. Uh, and I was like, why would I do that? Like, we're Facebook, you know, like all yeah, this my, stuff. My, I, I want to touch on instinct. Why? Like what? I didn't know. I, I didn't know the game. Like, like I didn't understand the idea that I could give money to a very small company. And if it was the right company, it would grow. Like I literally didn't understand what angel investing was. Right. And so I just was like, basically looking at my buddy, like, why'd you give me your, like, that was dumb. Like you could go to Vegas and like, just can't, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I just, it didn't hit me. Uh, and it was, again, it was a lack of knowledge, right? It was a lack of understanding, uh, one, why somebody would do that. Two, the potential return profile, how asymmetric early stage investing was. And then three, also, I think it was a sense of like, I was still young. Uh, I didn't have a ton of money. So I like was very um, kind of, uh, not critical, but, but just like, yeah, I was just careful, I think, right? And, and so, it kind of led to this like paralysis by analysis. I was just like, ah, whatever. Uh, and then I got busy and, and just never thought about it. Well, like, as people know, like DoorDash is a multi-billion dollar company now. And like, that was pretty stupid. Um, but it was a great lesson because what I got to see was, you know, what ended up being early employees or co-founders, I, I can't remember, uh, of a company that ended up being a multi-billion dollar business and seeing what they were talking about at that time. And like, I think they would probably say it like, they're way better today than they were then. It's not a knock against them, right? It's just like they have years of experience now. They've went, and they've, they've learned, they, they've kind of cut their teeth, right? They've built that muscle memory. And so I think that like those types of experiences are really educational. But then what I did was like, I started asking questions. I started going and finding people that were investors in early stage startups and saying to them, hey, why are you doing this? How does this work? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then by, so that was 2014 or 2015, by 2016, 
I think 2016, I was starting to raise a fund, right? And doing it full time. And so like the learning curve was steep, but uh, once I kind of said, hey, like this is super interesting, um, I, I went really hard at it. And uh, you know, here we are kind of four years later or so, invested in you know, over a hundred companies. And uh, you know, frankly, think I'm pretty stupid for passing on that and a lot of other companies I passed on, but at the same time, we've got some, uh, some winners as well. So uh, you know, just constantly learning um, you know, how to get better at it. I want to talk about your winners. So as I said in your Twitter bio, you have magical unicorns. Who are those unicorns? Uh, I, I don't think I could talk about all of them. Yeah, uh, no, I'm, you can just give uh, one. And I think I, I would love to hear context okay, so I'll give you. Story. I'll give you one. Uh, one that, ju- that um, just announced that they uh, raised it over a billion dollar valuation is a company called Everly Well. Um, basically, this woman, uh, Julia Cheek, uh, she was a, I think, Harvard Business School graduate, lived in Austin, Texas. Uh, she had this idea of taking at-home diagnostic testing. Uh, so think of, you know, they ship you a uh, testing kit. You like prick your finger or do whatever the test is. Uh, you send them back the results. They, you know, analyze them and they tell you via digital communication, like, hey, here's the, the results of the test. Um, so this is like food sensitivity and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, she was raising money, um, at a, uh, like a seed ish round, um, pretty low valuation. Uh, she got for, into- for context for listeners, because again, most of them are young. Can you explain that process? So you, what that means and everything that yeah. comes into that. So she'd started a business, um, and she basically knew that in order to grow that business, she needed money. And there's two ways to get money is one, you can go get money from your customers, basically sell them something and take their money and use that for operations. Or you can basically sell a part of your business, earn money that way or or, uh, raise money that way, and then use that to fund operations. But when you sell a part of your business, you're basically giving ownership to somebody else, right? Or or a piece of ownership to somebody else. So that's what she was doing. Um, And basically what you do is you try to figure out, okay, I want to sell, you know, let's use easy numbers. I want to sell 10% of my business for a million dollars, which means my business can be valued at $10 million, right? Um, And so she was doing that. Uh, we put, um, what ended up being a pretty small check. I think we invested like $50,000 in her company and fast forward. Now, uh, she literally went from, um, you know, kind of a, a very early low valuation. Uh, I think we invested at like a $15 million valuation to today. Uh, she last raised money at a $1.3 billion valuation. And so when you look at that, you're like, how does that happen? Well, one, she built an amazing team. Two, she knew what she wanted to build and she stayed disciplined and patient and and really went after it aggressively uh, and ended up being successful doing that. And then three, she was a great founder and was very opportunistic along the way when COVID happened. She raced and she was uh, either the first or one of the first companies uh, in the United States to get approval for an at-home COVID test. Mm. And so that explosion of revenue there. And, And so you can just see like, she knew what she wanted to do. It was obvious that she was really, really set on doing it. We thought that she was going to be a great founder. We invested in her. She built this team. She built a product. She executed. And then when opportunity presented itself, she you know, jumped on it, ended up uh, kind of furthering the business or accelerating the business. Uh, and today she's a company that's worth $1.3 billion. And the crazy part is we made that investment 2016 or 2017. I can't remember, right? But like we're talking about in a span of three or four years. She's literally taking a business that was valued at $15 million to 1.3 billion. And so it's like, you know, being long innovation and long entrepreneurs ends up being pretty profitable when they do what they, um, you know, what, what they potentially can achieve and build successful companies. Two part question. So one is obvious because of the valuation being 
however times from the moment you invested due to you one sticking to that, the amount that now you gain is a lot higher, right? Correct. Correct. Second part is, is it typical that throughout that process, because I'm sure there was other rounds, right? Between the time you invested to this evaluation as an investor, are you capable or able to pull out? So or is there, is there maturity dates on that? Yeah. So every deal is different, right? Um, there, there's kind of three things that you can do in these rounds. So, uh, and there's a whole bunch of things that like legally you're allowed to do. Um, and then also there's like, I'll call it like social construction around what you're supposed to do. Right. right. But nobody wants somebody to invest in their company in the first round. And then when the second round comes around, they're going to give me my money back plus all the profits. Like that's a bad partner, right? So like, right. Yeah, but maybe, it, it, that's something that can happen and it does happen, correct? It, it depends. It's very, very rare because okay. founders and other investors are smart now about the way that these documents are usually structured. Okay. Uh, usually that doesn't happen until later rounds, all that kind of stuff. But uh, in this particular, well, just in general. So if you invest in an early round and there's future rounds, you can do one of three things. You can do nothing, right? Which basically means whatever is raised is raised. Two, you could try to sell your position, right, to a, a new investor. Another. There's, you know, details around it, whether that'll be a, a good thing to do or a bad thing. Uh, or three is you can try to buy more of the company. And so early on in my career of investing, right, which is, you know, four or five years ago, I didn't understand this. All I did was I would just make the initial investment. You know, so Julie is a great example. It, it invest $50,000, bam, it takes off home run. Like we're geniuses, right? Like, woo, you know, high five my partner and like game on. But now with the knowledge that I have, we should have invested as much money as possible in every single round after that, because if she raised, and I forget what she raised money at in the future rounds, but let's just say she raised money at, you know, a hundred, 200 and $300 million uh, valuations. Each one of those investments would have been up 10, you know, eight to 10 X into uh, the new valuation. And the reason why there was a higher valuation at that time was because it was actually de-risked. It was a less risky investment than the investment we made at the $15 million valuation. Right. So there's this kind of balance between that you get access to a higher return. There's more asymmetry on the investment, the more risk you take. Mm -hmm. But if you took the riskiest opportunity and you invested and it's working, there's this saying that like, the best investors in the world press their winners harder than everybody else. You should be piling as much money into the company as, as the founder will allow you to, and that you have capacity to do because the winners in venture capital, it's such a power law that the winners are going to pay for everything else. Right. And so if you look at some of these funds, I think, you know, Sequoia, uh, some of their returns got published recently. And I think that they have funds. They were up like eight X, 10 X and 11 X on hundreds of millions of dollars in their funds. Wow. It's pretty serious stuff, right? But guess what? They didn't just make a single investment, right? They made a single investment and then they, and the next round doubled down and doubled down and doubled down on the company because the companies end up being so successful. And so again, you know, didn't understand in the beginning, learned that and, you know, in future investments started to leverage that to, uh, to build bigger positions and, and frankly give a bigger return to our investors. That's amazing. I want to get into the next part of who you are and kind of how I always see you on the news Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it was a big topic early 2016, right? It was like, I felt like everyone was talking about it. Everyone was dumping money. There was winners, there was losers. Um, but you still today are on the news talking about it. And just a couple of days ago, it was like an all time high. 
before I continue, I want to make it clear. We're not giving any financial advice. You're not giving any financial advice. It's simply education on the topic and more so you're an individual that clearly has a deep understanding of it and also um, is well rehearsed in it um, on understanding what it is and what it does. For those who don't know, uh, I would love for you, what is Bitcoin? And also I would like for you to bring up a blockchain. I think those are two very, very important things. Yeah, so Bitcoin is basically just think of it as digital cash, right? And if you think of the US dollar versus Bitcoin, for example, they're basically 180% uh, 180 degrees different, right? And what I mean by that is uh, the US dollar is inflationary, meaning that there's constantly new dollars being put into circulation. Um, and those decisions are made by humans at the Federal Reserve uh, and our elected officials. And what that does is it devalues the dollar. So if you think of, you know, why was gas, it used to be 25 cents, 50 cents a gallon. Now it's two bucks. It's not because the gas got more valuable. It's because the dollar got weaker, right? So the dollar's lost like 99% of its purchasing power uh, over the last couple of decades. And so when you start to think about that one system and you compare it to Bitcoin, Bitcoin's the exact opposite. There's no unlimited amount of supply. There's only going to be 21 million ever. It has something called a disinflationary monetary uh, schedule, which just means that uh, it's constantly putting new Bitcoin into circulation, but every four years that amount drops until eventually it'll be no new Bitcoin being put in. And then what you get is rather than it being devalued over time, Bitcoin has actually been incredibly um, aggressive in its appreciation, right? But the question is like, is it because Bitcoin's getting more valuable or is it because the dollar is getting devalued against it? It's probably a little mm. bit of both. And so when I, when I think of Bitcoin, basically think of the same reason people tell you to buy a house, right? Why do they tell you to buy a house? It's the greatest investment you could make, right? Buy real estate. Well, it's because real estate always goes up is the saying. The real estate didn't get any more valuable. It's that the dollar keeps getting devalued. And so if you sit with your dollars in your bank account, if you have $100 today, five years from now, that $100 can't buy you the same amount of stuff it can buy you today, right? Literally the prices of everything continues to go up. And you know, the joke is always like, think of the things in your childhood that you would pay for. And then go look at the prices today. And you'd be like, how does it two times more expensive than you know, I used to think it was? Well, it's because the dollar's being devalued and you're losing purchasing power. So the sad part in the United States is 50% of Americans, the bottom 50%, own no investable assets. It means that they get uh, a paycheck, they live paycheck to paycheck, and all of the money that they have sits in a, a bank account. That's it. They have no, nothing else other than just cash. Well, the, as that cash is sitting there, it's losing value. It still says, if you put $100, it still says $100, but that $100 can't buy you the same thing. And so this is the whole phenomena of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It's because the rich understand, right? It's not a, a money thing. It's an education thing. They understand I'm not going to leave my money in cash. I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it into other assets. I'm going to invest it. So they buy stocks, they buy real estate, they buy gold, they buy Bitcoin, they buy whatever, right? But when they do that, what happens is the dollar keeps falling and those assets stay the same. And therefore on a dollar basis, the assets go up in value. So it takes more dollars to buy that same asset in the future than it did when they invested. So they quote unquote make money. And that is ultimately the whole thing about, you know, just financial education in general is like, 
get the hell out of sitting in cash. You should have enough money for a kind of rainy day fund and then invest uh, so your money can grow. Uh, but also that's the whole idea behind Bitcoin is basically Bitcoin has provided this new monetary policy uh, where people don't have to save in dollars. They can save in Bitcoin uh, and it protects their wealth, right? It's kind of sound money principles, kind of what gold has done for decades. Um, and what we're seeing is literally tens of millions of people around the world are electing to do this. Um, and, uh, and it's pretty exciting. And so I think that we're going to continue to see that trend, um, you know, go in the same direction for the years to come. Would you say Bitcoin, because of the relevancy of it being cool, helps out the market? Um, yeah. Because there's a lot of, I, I think right now, in my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, due to COVID um, and the timing, we're going to see a lot of generational wealth moved around. Um, and also due to social media, uh, like yourself, you have a, a podcast with Josh Richardson, these young, young teenagers with an influx of cash that are like, how can I get it out there, Right. Um, and it seems to me that Bitcoin, aside from people like you, could be the cool thing to invest in. And by that, of course, like anything else, it'll raise the price of what it's going for. Do you believe that plays a big component with it today? Yeah, I, I tend to think that the cool factor comes from uh, young people. And young people aren't doing it because it's cool. They're doing it because they understand innovation better than older people. Right. And this is a generalization. So, so th there's uh, a lot of nuance here. There's definitely examples that, that are counter to it. But in general, young people understand technology and innovation better than older people. Right. And a perfect example is like my generation grew up. We got our first cell phones in high school. Mm. Right. The generation below me got their first cell phones in middle school. The generation below them start in elementary school, right? And so like, just take those three generations of kids, they grew up with cell phones in their hands, right? And like, I literally remember, I was the tail end of kids who, when I was in high school, I couldn't get a Facebook account because you needed a uh, college email. And then I remember like getting my college email and being like, yeah, like I'm on Facebook, right? So stupid, right? And so I think that like, even though that happened, now there's kids that are you know, 15, 16, and they're growing up with all these social networks and they've and, you know, they got a plethora of them to choose from. They're gonna understand digital technology better than me or somebody older than me and things like that. And so I think that's what really drives a lot of this is like, if you ask young people, I asked my brother actually, he, he's uh, 24 now. I think I asked him when he's like 22 or 23. I said, hey, uh, do you know what a bank wire is? Have you ever sent one? He's like, what's that, right? And I was like, oh, you like go to the bank. He's like, why would I ever go to the bank? And I was like, uh, he's like, other than to go to the ATM. And I was like, okay, fair. Um, I was like, well, how do you send money to your friends? He's like, oh, two ways. I use Venmo and I use Uber. And Venmo, I expected, right? I use Venmo, whatever. But I was like, Uber? And he was like, yeah, like when I get in a car with my friend, we split the ride at the end. And I was like, wow. I knew that that feature existed, but I never thought of it as a way to send money to my friend. And so it was just like that little thing was so obvious to me. I was like, damn, am I old already? Like, am I already like getting, you know, too, uh, too out of this? And so it, it's just this thing of like, even when you're aware of, let's say a feature or a product, you may not have the, uh, the framework to evaluate the same way that somebody else does who's more familiar with the technology. And so, you know, one is like, if you're young, use it to your advantage. But two, if you're older, like one of the best things to do is go hang out with a bunch of young people because they'll keep you abreast of what's going on and how they think about this stuff. It's so important because it's staying relevant because things are moving so fast with technology and such. Uh, what are some financial habits that you took on that you believe helped you 
um, save money and then more so take that next step of being able to invest and, and find these companies. Because me personally, I'm 26 years old and I had the education, financial education talk with one of my good friends uh, who's in the banking world. And we literally sat down, taught me about 401k, stock markets, ETFs, all those things that in a way, family, it's almost like taboo talking about money, right? I believe it's reverse psychology. That should be spoken about because people feel that way because they're not educated enough on it where it makes them feel uncomfortable. Uh, what are some, yeah, what are some financial habits that you believe that worked for you um, that others could take on that are even small ones? Because again, someone like yourself, when a listener's listening to this, even me, where you're like, all right, I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to just be investing. Yep. Uh, but I believe it's the little things you do today that help for tomorrow. You know, forget the Starbucks coffee, do that for a week. You have 50 bucks or right, throw that into getting, you know, start, uh, something, right? So what are, what are those habits that you recommend when it comes financially taking that next step? Yeah. So I'll give you, I, I kind of have these five rules of personal finance, right? So the first is uh, you got to spend less than you make, right? And that sounds real simple, but literally like that step one is if you make, $50,000 a year, you got to spend less than you make after taxes, right? If you make $20,000 a year, you got to spend less than you make. If you make $2 million a year, you got to spend less than you make. That is the number one key is you got to live within your means. The second thing then is you got to get out of debt. So a lot of young people are probably listening to this and they're like, damn, I got a lot of debt. I got to pay this stuff off. And so, you know, I come from the school of thought of like the Dave Ramsey of the world of like, do whatever it takes to pay off that debt as fast as humanly possible, because it literally is just taking money from you the longer that it persists out there. And so, you know, he's got this saying, I think of, uh, if you're in debt, you shouldn't see the inside of a restaurant unless you're going to work there. Right. Like, like, that's, the mentality. like it's literally, <laughs> that's a good one. You know, like I, I think he calls it rice and beans until you get the debt paid off. Right. Like, like that's the mentality you got to have so you can pay it off. Because then once you pay it off, now that money that you're saving by living within your means isn't going to pay your debt. Instead, now it's going to your bank account. Mm -hmm. And so the key to this is one, get rid of your debt. Uh, but then the next thing is you want to have multiple streams of income. We spend a lot of time with people saying, hey, you should try to figure out how to save $300, right? What I always tell everyone is like, okay, so if you want me to save $300 in my monthly budget, a lot of times people aren't out buying Ferraris, right? Like it, it, they're doing something else. And so to spend, you know, uh, save $300, I can't go to the bar with my friends. I can't go to the movies. I can't go buy that, you know, gift for Christmas or whatever it is. But is it easier to save $300 or is it harder to just go out and make an extra $5,000 this year? A lot of times it's actually easier to go make the $5,000 than it is to save $300 a month. And so if you have that mentality of like, I'm going to cut my costs, and I'm going to increase my income all at the same time. That's where you really start to, you know, start cranking on your income. And so in that situation, uh, the, having multiple streams of income, not only one increases your overall income, but two, it diversifies your risk, right? You're not, if you lose your job, you're not out of uh, making money. Now you've got other things in, in the works. So, um, you know, it's live within your means, get out of debt, uh, make sure you've got multiple streams of income. Then the fourth one's real important, invest. Saving is for losers, investing is for winners. And that is a, a societal thing that we told you, save, 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 save. You should save enough money to live for a month, three months, six months, whatever you're comfortable with, right? I call it like the rainy day fund. You should have enough money sitting in a bank account so that you can live for X period of time that you're comfortable with if you lose your job. After you hit that number, you should invest all the money. 
and you should be smart. You should be conservative. You should do all this stuff, but you have to put your money to work for you. And the reason why I say that is because you're not going to get rich off your salary. It's not going to happen. Instead, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to live within your means, get out of debt, have multiple streams of income, and then grow your money for you. And so what people hate to hear is if you make $50,000 a year after taxes, after expenses, if you're able to put, I think it's $100 a month away and you invest in the S&P 500 and you continue to do that every year for 30 years, given the historical trend of the S&P, you'll end up with a couple hundred thousand dollars at the end. And that's just a hundred bucks a month. That doesn't include other investments you make, et cetera. So I always tell people like, anyone can be a millionaire, anyone, if you follow these rules, but the key to doing it, which is the fifth rule, is you gotta be persistent and you gotta be disciplined and patient. So you gotta stay on top of it. You gotta do the right things. You gotta live within your means. You gotta invest, you gotta get out of debt. You gotta do all these things but you gotta have a long-term time frame, And so that leads me to this new concept that um, I recently heard that I just like, I'm infatuated with, which is this idea of a time billionaire. So everyone thinks in finance about billionaires being dollar billionaires. I have a billion dollars, right? That means that I'm rich. That means that I'm able to um, use my resources, whether they're financial or my network or my influence or whatever to get richer, right? And therefore I'm wealthy because I have a billion dollars and I can buy leverage. I can buy employees. I can buy time. I can buy, you know, machinery, whatever to grow my wealth. But if you look at a time billionaire, what if we measured wealth in the seconds that you have in your life? Mm-hmm. So if you think of a million seconds, that's about 11 days. If you think of a billion seconds, that's about 31 years. So 1 million seconds is 11 days, 31, sec- uh, 31 years is about a billion seconds. And so you start thinking like, okay. And there's this guy, uh, Graham Duncan, who talked about this on uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast. And what he basically was explaining was he was like, why do we only ce- celebratize the dollar billionaire, the time billionaire, right? If you're 20, You probably got 2 billion seconds left in your life, right? With modern technology. And so if you think about it, which would you rather have a billion dollars or a billion seconds? Well, let's think about it. Would you at 26 switch lives with Warren Buffett? You'll be the one of the top five richest men in the world, but you got to be 90 and you're likely to die in the next, you know, five or 10 years. Or would you rather be 26 with your whole life ahead of you? Right? Most people actually would choose to be 26 without the money. And so you are wealthier than Warren Buffett in that sense, because you're not willing to switch places with him. He would likely be willing to pay a lot of money to switch spots with you. (laughs) right? And so the reason why I bring this up is this idea of a time billionaire means you do not have a billion dollars in financial resources. You're not a dollar billionaire, but you're a time billionaire. And when you're a time billionaire, use the advantage you have, use your wealth or your resource, invest for the long term because you have time on your side. And so what you're able to do is say, okay, I need to put 20 bucks away a month, 50 bucks away a month, hundred bucks away, uh, away a month, whatever the numbers that you can get to every single month, super disciplined and think about it for 30 years. And you'll end up with millions of dollars at the end, right? If you're, if you're really disciplined, you increase your income over time, you're able to keep increasing the amount of money that you're investing and you do it in a safe conservative way that works out over a long period of time, you will end up being a multimillionaire. And the whole key to it is nobody wants to do that because they don't want to get rich slow. They want to get rich tomorrow. And so it just comes down to understanding, like, I got time 
and the people who have money would switch with me in a heartbeat. So why don't I stop complaining that I don't have money and instead focus on the time advantage I have and use that so that I can get wealthy? Mic drop. <laughs> that was that was it. No, that's it. That's it. The, Warren, the Warren Buffett metaphor. That's it for me. That that that's so. That that's it. That's it. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Where's the best place where people can follow you? And please let them know about your podcast. Yeah, I would say um, Twitter's probably the easiest place. Just at a Pompliano. Uh, the podcast Pomp Podcast. Uh, you can just search for it. You know, YouTube or uh, or the various audio platforms. Um, and then I write this uh, email every day. Uh, it's just pompletter.com, uh, where basically I try somehow to break down all this complex stuff into uh, everyday English for, uh, for people. And uh, so far, so good. Love that, pompletter.com. I'm going to sign up for that. So I, I didn't know you had that. Send me your so, email. All right, I got you. I got you. I'll email it to you. Thank you so much for coming on.